Amen. What a privilege it is to be able to sing right next to you, side by side, partnering together, and to be able to worship our Savior, Jesus Christ, together this morning. I was just rejoicing in him again, and I look forward to uh, the part of the service in the very near future where we will uh, celebrate communion together as well. I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm just going to take 20 minutes or so and uh, finish out this chapter. I've been trying to finish it for about nine weeks now. Uh, But I'm pretty sure uh, we're coming to the end of this long chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. We have three verses to look at in these 20 minutes. Last week, we looked at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 55, to discover more about how Christ brings about our future resurrection. In those verses, we learned that it it is absolutely necessary for us to to undergo a transformation if we are going to inherit the kingdom of God. So when the trumpet sounds and Jesus returns, the text says the dead in Christ will rise first in new glorified bodies, and then we who are alive and remain will meet the Lord in the air and will be instantly changed at that moment. Near the end of that paragraph, Paul uses the Old Testament to show that Jesus changes our fundamental relationship to death. Death in the Old Testament scriptures uh, was reigning and ruling and swallowing up everything in its path. But now, because of the work of Jesus Christ, death itself is defeated. It is swallowed up in victory. This leads Paul to make a few more statements about death in verse 56. And so as we look at verse 56, this passage just gives us two proverbial statements again, or Two maxims. So if you could arrange these two statements, you could put them in parallel uh, columns like I did last week. You look at the first part of the verse, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is law. These proverbial statements are difficult, but as we look at them, I think Uh, it doesn't take much to realize that there's some deep significance to these statements. They're short, but they're meaningful and powerful. Our own political situation, going through the last election, we realize that sometimes very short statements can be packed full of meaning with the slogans that were used. They can be packed full of meaning. Well, Paul in these two Proverbs, I think, has much meaning in verse 56 As I said, these statements are obscure, they're difficult, but they leave the impression that they're important, and and to me, they leave the impression that they're springing forth from Paul's deep theology. So we look a little bit closer at verse 56. I want to give you two keys, I think, that will help you understand the, the full point of these Proverbs. First, as I said before, these two statements are completely parallel. So if we're going to understand verse 56, we've got to treat the one statement the same way we treat the other. We'll interpret the one the same way we, we, we treat the other. But secondly, I think it might help us to rearrange the translations a bit in order to grasp the full significance. So you could translate it this way. Sin is death's sting. And law, the law, I think he's talking about the Mosaic law, is sin's power. Having said that, I want to look at these two phrases a bit more. 
in what sense is sin death's sting? As you look at that first phrase, it's perplexing. It springs from Paul's deep theology. And there are a few different ways to take it. But I think maybe what Paul is doing here is he is personifying death again. Remember the Old Testament text taught that uh, death had a throat that would swallow up its victims. And death was victorious, reigning and ruling over people. Here in the first part of verse 56, I think he says, death has a sting. Death personified has a sting. Perhaps the image then is of death like a poisonous creature having a sting or a stinger. The image I get in my mind, at least that helps me, is death is like a scorpion that has a tail. And the tail is sin. Paul talks about the relationship of sin and death in other texts in the New Testament as well that kind of help us here, I think. Romans 5 and verse 12 is one of those texts, I think, where he, he describes this for us. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, sin through Adam, and death through sin, okay, so death was attached to sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. I think he's talking about original sin here, but this text, that, that text teaches that sin brought death, and death came upon all who sin. In our text, in personifying death, I think he's saying sin is death's sting. Sin is the poisonous instrument of death personified, who's reigning over us. The second statement could be translated this way. Law is sin's power. Again, we hear that statement, I think we need to think about, well, what does that mean, right? Sometimes these short statements can be really hard. Law is sin's power. I think it could be translated something like this. Law is the power that leads to sin. But again, we're trying to make sense out of why would Paul say that about the law of God or the law of Moses? This is where I think the book of Romans helps us. We won't take the time to turn there because we only have a few minutes this morning, but I think Romans 7 can be, begin to help us here. In Romans 7 and verse 12, we are reminded by Paul that the law is holy and just and good. Law of Moses from God is a holy, just, and good thing. It's in no way evil or wicked. But then we also learn in that same chapter that the law of Moses reveals our sinfulness when it forbids us from doing something and that incites or provokes us to disobey the law. Okay, and so if you ever read through Romans 7, you're trying to make sense out of what Paul is saying there. He says, you know what, there's a problem with humanity in their relationship to the law of God. The problem is not the law. The law is holy, just, and good. The problem is we don't like law. We don't like laws. You know, I always use the illustration when I teach, you know, of you know, the, the tag on the mattress in the motel room that says, do not remove under whatever uh, penalty of law. You know, before that tag said that, I could care less about it. 
But now I begin wondering and asking questions like, how would they ever know? How would they do? Are there cameras in here? What's the big deal about a mattress tag anyway? So we're tempted to rip it off. Perhaps I'm the only one who's felt that temptation. And so, again here, I think the picture of the second statement might be the personification of something. This time it's sin personified. Sin is like an evil tyrant ruler over humanity who has a power, has an authority that he wields. The authority that he wields is the law because he knows how we'll respond to the law. We'll try to abuse it. We'll try to do whatever we can because sin is using the law to incite us toward rebellion and increased sinfulness and death. The text says the law is sin's power. These powerful proverbial statements in verse 56 lead Paul to another statement of victory, verse 57. Don't you love verse 57? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He just spoke of sin and death about as powerfully as he could. He made them beings, wielding their power over us. And here he introduces two members of the Godhead, God the Father who gives us the victory over sin and death through the Son Jesus Christ. And in particular, we have learned this chapter over and over again that it's the resurrection of Jesus that gives us that power. Paul is not quite finished in this text, for in verse 58, he gives a very powerful and important verse. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your, na- your labor is not in vain. Here, Paul ends this chapter in a typical fashion. He's done this at the end of chapter 11 and chapter 14. He ends with the word, therefore, and then he gives some commands. In particular here, he gives us three commands that we can go through uh, fairly quickly. Paul gives uh, commands uh, that are nearly synonymous, at least the first two are. He says that we are to be steadfast, which means unwavering or unswerving. The second is like it. He says we are to be immovable, which means we, we are to be fixed or permanent. And these two together, I think, provide the sense of the fact that we would be willing, because of the future bodily resurrection that we will experience, to hold the line and not give in. I think one gets the impression as you're reading these first two, be steadfast and immovable, you get the impression of stubbornness. Now, stubbornness is not something, you know, it's not a redeeming quality that we like to teach in our culture today. Um, it's not something that I usually try to teach to my children. Nor, I don't normally say to my son, very good job, way not to give in to your sisters. Keep being stubborn. And we, don't, we don't typically exalt it like that. But there are some times when immovability is a redeeming quality. Perhaps Paul could have given these commands to the Thessalonian church who was facing all sorts of persecution and trials. They're right in the midst of it. And Paul could have said, 
What I, what I want you to do is I don't want you to give in. I want you to be immovable. Now, these two commands to the Corinthian church, they, it seemed to be a little out of place because we know the Corinthian church had all kinds of problems, right? Divided, skeptical, all sorts of issues. They were uh, morally lax, all these different problems and sins. It's, it's a bit surprising that Paul would tell them, I don't want you to move. But I think that he has a very, uh, very uh, important or very uh, clear idea in his mind in what way he doesn't want them to move. And that's, he doesn't want them to move from the gospel that he proclaimed to them. He actually uses a, a root word, uh, the root form of the same word in verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 1 in your text. It says, uh, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and in which you stand. Same root word here. And by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So the way in which Paul wants them to be steadfast and immovable is regarding the doctrinal truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there are some times when believers should, should stand and refuse to move from something. And this text is telling us refuse to move from the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the future bodily resurrection of believers. Be steadfast, immovable. And then he adds to that, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And I think that when he gets to this point, he's describing our commitment to what I would call ministerial labor or toil. Its essence, this passage is imploring us not to quit, but to increase our efforts in ministry for the Lord because of our future bodily resurrection. So always abounding in the work of the Lord, I think is speaking about overflowing service for the Lord. It includes efforts done in this assembly to build others and to evangelize the lost for the glory of God. And so what Paul is doing is he's wrapping up here. He's giving these commands. He's telling them, do not hesitate or desist from doing the work of the Lord. And don't, don't approach this in like a half-hearted manner. Be always abounding in it. And so just a moment of application here. I just would ask you, um, is your service to the Lord half-hearted these days? Do you serve God only when it's convenient? Or could we say of you that you are engaged in strenuous, sacrificial work for God. See, there's much for us to accomplish for the glory of God in this church. And there are all sorts of different ways I could imagine that we should be abounding in the Lord's work. For sake of application, I've got a few things here. I think that we could be, we could be really engaging in as a church. One would be caring for the facilities God has given to us here. We're just about ready to, to redo an entire roof on the front of the building. We rejoice for God's provision of that. We have some trees that maybe could be cut down. We have a chapel overflow project that needs to get done. There's much to do. It's not time to be passive. But we could go down through the grace essentials on this too. We could talk about the need for Christians to be engaged in the text. 
There's always a need at Colonial Baptist Church for men and women who will be always abounding in their work as Christian teachers of adult Bible studies, children's Bible studies, and junior church. And although it may be true that other Christians on Saturdays are enjoying, you know, fun things like pizza and movies and, you know, checking online statuses. We need some people who would say, I want to be faithful to study so that I can build the body of Christ. I want to be committed to the text. We need men and women who are always abounding in their work as Christian teachers of these studies and devotionals. We need some believers who will not shrink back from toilsome ministerial labor and preparation. The staff were also praying that there would be some men, especially, that would be desirous of learning to shepherd the people of God. The points of emphasis for our pastoral staff, we just came back from a pastoral retreat, is that we would pray that God would send us men, both already within the body, or perhaps some even from outside the body, that we could train for pastoral ministry, for church planting, for things like revitalization. There's plenty to do for the gospel of Jesus Christ in this city and in this town. We need men and women who are really committed to community, who are committed to disciple believers in this church. People who will take, like the new members bulletin when it comes out, and will attend the service when new members are brought into the body and say, you know, I'm going to commit to pray for these people. I'm going to get to know these people, and I'm going to look for ways I can build them so they can be good, vibrant members of the body of Jesus Christ. People really committed to community, men and women who will not flinch under the heavy load of building others up in the community of God at Colonial Baptist Church. We need men and women who are committed to mission who will sweat and sacrifice, hearing the the challenge of Paul here. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And, And they will apply that to their own life and their evangelization of their neighborhoods. Perhaps when you moved into your neighborhood, you remembered, you had a zeal, you wanted to meet your neighbors, but now, you know, it's been some time, and so now you're a little numb to the fact that these people are utterly helpless. They need Christ. So you just drive past their house without getting to to know them and evangelize them. We need to wake up and be always abounding in the work of the Lord in mission. Basically, I think verse 58 should tell us there's plenty of work here to do. There's a call to service ringing out clearly in this text. And I pray and have been praying that would ring out clearly in our ears that it would seize our consciences and that we would be committed afresh and anew to to serve God even if it means always abound in God's work. So as we come to the end of this text, the end of verse 58, you might ask me why. Preacher, why would you ask me to live that way? Why would Paul expect this like always abounding stuff? And that's what the very last words of verse 58 are answering. The reason why. The ultimate motivation for us knowing, he says, knowing that in the Lord, your labor, it's not worthless. It's not in vain. This verse forms a powerful incentive to invest heartily for the Lord. 
Paul says, labor you do for Jesus will never be in vain. One day you will rise and you will experience reward for the faithfulness that God has enabled in your life. Perhaps some of us have lost sight of this text. I said it would be a short sermon. I'm just about done. We lost sight of these motivations and these commands. May God incite us to do more of that. Perhaps some of us need to double or triple the amount of labor we're offering to the Lord in light of the fact that Jesus could return at any moment. The very first time I ever preached on 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, was over 15 years ago. I was a youth pastor, and uh, I was leaving the church that I'd been at for three years, Crosslands Bible Church, and as my final challenge to that church, I preached an entire sermon on verse 58. And as I look over those notes, I looked over them this week, I was reminded of my youthful zeal for the Lord. The youthful zeal I had in instructing those people. I remember studying for that sermon. Staying up, I think, till five or six in the morning so that it would be just right. You know, now a late night for me is something like 10 p.m. <laughs> five or six. My, how my youthful heart burned for those people, for that church and that community. Do you remember when you came to know the Lord? Do you remember a time in your life where you had great zeal for the word, for him? You accomplished much. You exerted much. You faithfully engaged other people in the church. You longed to be there with the people. You fervently took every opportunity that you had to study the word. I challenge you, don't lose your youth's large vision. Don't allow it to fade to nothing. Don't lose your commitment to toil. And if the strength and optimism of your youth has faded away, apply yourself afresh and anew. And women, there is much to be done in this city. There are many people to reach. And there is little time before the trumpet sounds and the Lord returns. And we will be with him forever and ever. Be encouraged. The victory is yours. The Savior is coming. Press on. Be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Let's pray together. Fathers, we prepare for the Lord's table. I found this text to be, again, motivational. Now motivational to a middle-aged preacher. Originally, 
to a young man. Lord, I pray that you would use the words of the Apostle Paul, these reminders, these imperatives, and the motivation to stir us regardless of our age. Lord, there are some young people, there are some teens under the sound of my voice who could do far more for the kingdom of God. The same could be true of middle-aged people. It's true of the elderly. Lord, give us strength. May we really, truly believe that Christ did rise again and that one day soon we will rise. And may that stir us. Or may it, as I said, may it seize our consciences this morning. Drive us faithfully serve you in text, in community, in mission, in worship. Care for other people in this assembly. We thank you for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.